0: You are listening to the Climbing Talent Development Show. Climbing coaches Udo Neumann and Alvaro Rangel talk about all aspects of talent development in climbing. We are recording this show with video, but will from now on include explanations of the video examples, so that you can follow along while listening to this podcast. Today we talk about the constraints-led approach teaching and coaching method based on the principles of nonlinear pedagogy the first thing that comes to mind whenever
1: we're talking about something like this is is language and you've mentioned this before and we've talked about it especially you and i being in different countries maybe we think we're talking about the same thing and uh it's it's good just to kind of lay a baseline of what we're talking about so that everybody gets a good idea so when you're talking about nonlinear p- pedagogy uh, and how that applies to the constraints led approach, you've created kind of this, this triangle, which is a really good representation of the approach that leads yes. to a constraints led approach coaching. So if you kind of want to go over, it, yeah,
0: triangle has, uh, well, three, uh, angle three corners. It's the task. That's probably the most obvious what most coaches uh, think about. And The nice thing about the constraints led approach is that it's very much what climbing is about anyhow. So it's it's what many coaches are already doing. Let's talk about the task. It's very easy for us as climbing coaches to manipulate the task and uh, to get a desired uh, behavior. I just recently climbed on a, a really easy wall, but this time it was wet. It just had rained and it was a lot harder. So if uh, this had been done by my climbing coach, uh, it would have been uh, already, uh, yeah, manipulating the constraints and the affordances. Well, may- maybe, Al, we should uh, talk about constraints and affordances.
1: And I, I think uh, something to highlight, because you said, oh, even this is essentially what climbing is. Like for me, especially competition bouldering is constraints-led approach. Like uh, you basically say here's you you have some rules the task itself is you have four minutes or five minutes you know per boulder here's the start here's the finish and you have certain things that you're allowed to do and certain things you're not allowed to do and you're the performer and the environment could be you know whatever competition you're at or inside of of your gym for practice but that's pretty much it. Like, and I think that's a really, really good way of thinking about it. Uh, and it leads into the affordances part because when we think about, Oh, intended beta, you almost lose that a little bit. Cause then you're trying to think about you, you're not just thinking, Oh, here's my task and here are my rules and I'm going to accomplish the task. It, you're starting to think about like, Oh, well, I wonder what this person was trying to get me to do. And that's something else altogether.
0: Yes. yes, affordances are uh, what affords you. There's, I think, an artificial word, a word that doesn't exist in the dictionary, uh, and it was in, in invented to describe that something affords you a certain action. You know? And the detection of affordances is uh, essential for any kind of, not only for bordering competitions, obviously, but for any kind of, of problem-solving. And there are huge differences in, in uh, how capable people are in detecting affordances. It's, of course, context-dependent. You know? Like if you're a climber, you won't detect many affordances in, underwater, maybe, uh, for, for, for action and for moving. Uh, but uh, in my mind, or according to my experience, the best climbers are the best in detecting affordances. I'll give you an example. If I'm showing an athlete like like Jan Hoyer, or I, I shouldn't say showing, if I present a challenge to an athletes athlete like Jan Hoyer, I want to be really deliberate of how I communicate the constraints. Because he, on the other side, he will find affordances really Yeah, really well. So if I'm not very clear of what the constraints are, what he's not allowed uh, to use, no, you're not allowed to use your elbow, or yes, you're allowed to use your pinky. Now, then he will, uh, according to to my, uh, how I put the challenge, he will use uh, the available affordances to his advantage. And I think that's exactly what what had us do, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, it, it, in this case, affordances, for lack of a better definition, is what the athlete can get away with doing. And for the kids, it it is like that. So for me, a good example of something that we did, like uh, I, you know, I would, and we're gonna go into specific examples. I'll pull this video up. Um,
0: In this example, we laid volumes of different shapes and sizes on the ground, arranged in a circle with about six or seven meters diameter. If you land on the volume from the side, it will slip and slide on the ground. This presents interesting options to facilitate or constrain what is the best way to run and jump over these volumes.
1: But this is something that we would do in training camps quite a bit. And uh, even before this step, we would just have a volume on the ground where we were asking people to just stand on it. Like w- the goal a lot of times was for a lot of these kids, they didn't have you know big volumes that they climbed on frequently and they just were really uncomfortable on them. And so we'd, we'd have a volume on the ground for them to stand up and just see how their feet sat on the volume. And you'd say, okay, I just want you to stand on this volume right now. And you'd get the kid that would just stand on the edges on top of the volume, which as a coach, you're like, Oh, well, you know, you get, you're like, you know what I mean? Go do it. But that's the wrong answer. Cause for the kid, that was the affordance. Like, yeah, you didn't tell me I could stand on this top part. You just told me to stand on, on the volume. And I did. And so it sharpens your skill as a coach as well, because you have to be really, you know, (laughs) intentional with what you're asking of them. And, uh, so it. this is kind of going back to the triangle here. For a lot of us, uh, when we do these essentially skill building exercises at the camp, we're almost working backwards thinking, okay, here's a movement that we want the athletes to become more comfortable in. And then how can we modify the other aspects in order to kind of get that result? so in this case being in standing and running on volumes things like that um
0: yes yeah. so it's even more than than the movement actually it's more of a quality of movement quality that we want to improve you know and and there's always this element of adaptability you now so that they can adapt to to changing uh, environments you now to to talk about the, the word environment is hidden behind uh, the two of us. Can can you move the picture? So that's the, that's one corner of the triangle. The green one is the environment. And what Al just was talking about in, in by not allowing the kids to stand on the edges of the volume, this would be a manipulation of the of their environment. no so we uh, so we talked about the task. no uh, which is very easy, smaller or bigger holes. A texture holes, um, or, or uh, skipping moves and the environment would be uh, things like like the edges of the volume that would be one aspect but can you play the video again because it had some some other aspects so, and as, as i just uh, described, uh, we uh, very often uh, we feel that the coaches are almost in the same situation as, as the climbers. So often we find out about affordances and possible constraints only by doing it. Now, at, at least in my case, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know when, when I start a challenge or trying to get the athletes interested in the challenge. I don't know really what's, what's going to happen. And then for me, it's just about seeing where they are at and then going, uh, taking it from there, and in this case, you just see how this one coach—he just—he's uh, not standing on the volume anymore, because w- when we first started this challenge, the coaches were supporting the volumes, which of course leads to a totally different successful movement strategy. And I think that's a very good example of the constraints-led approach is how you can foster certain qualities or if you overlook something, you're actually doing more harm than, than good. Now, if, you, if you're uh, supporting these volumes from the side, then they can uh, pretty much then the volumes are not going to move and the athletes don't learn to land on top of the volume, you know, or aligned to the uh, ideal uh, direction of loading. You just saw it with her, how the volume was moving to the right a little bit, was uh, sliding to the right.
1: Yeah, and in this, uh, like, we had, they essentially teach different things, and I think that was the cool thing about it. They teach different things, but it wasn't like we were necessarily saying, oh, okay, you know, this is why, I think if you start noticing... <laughs> If you notice then we also have uh, situations before where we would brace the volumes and we'd have them run around and it was, you know, carrying momentum and figuring out what basically just getting a feel for what the volumes feel like when you're running on them. Um, And this is a pretty good example of that.
0: Yeah, no, no, I'm uh, I'm not saying that it's per se not good to support the volume, but I think that's a nice example of how just by the uh, by the sheer by, by just changing if the volumes are supported with uh, the coaches feed or not, you totally change the outcome and the benefits of this uh, challenge.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I think I want I wanted to go back to to this one because, like you said, I think even when we were doing that drill we were thinking like, oh, safety wise, we want to make sure that these volumes are braced. And then afterwards like, okay, they feel more comfortable on it. Let's just, you know, see what happens when we don't brace them anymore and how it affects like, it's not like we're telling them, okay, now that you're doing this, you have to land on the volume this way. Essentially, once we unbrace the volumes, they try it once and they slip on it and then they start figuring out like what they can and can't do. And I think... This is a good opportunity for us to say why a constraint sled approach is, is valuable versus I guess what would be the alternative. And for me, the alternative is uh where essentially you get somebody, you know, five feet off the ground in a boulder where they have to do something with a volume that they maybe haven't seen before. That's the first time that they've done that. They come down, and as a coach, you're like well, I just need you to rock over and trust your feet on this move. And what's what's the issue with that, Udo?
0: The issue is that they don't learn to adapt to different challenges. And also that it would be, this is what, what's called explicit learning, like the coach, the know-it-all coach would tell the athlete how to do things. And there's a, I think traditionally, it's very understandable that climbing is coached this way because it used to be really dangerous. And so the coach didn't want it. A little bit like when we were bracing the volumes, you know, we were afraid that athletes would get hurt. And if, uh, if you're afraid of this, of course, you want to give distinct directions. You know, you uh, you don't want the basically you don't want to uh, the athletes to think by him or herself you know because you have so much more experience and uh, you want to protect them from harm Uh, but uh, uh, now as we are training in a safe environment we can be a little bit more brave and encouraging the the athletes to figure out things by themselves and even uh, using the the group you know like uh, if if these volumes need to be braced. Then they should be braced by other athletes. You know, if you have a group, that brings me to another aspect that's often overlooked, and the constraints that approach, that uh, the environment would be also the group. You know, so uh, things like social facilitation, that the group uh, is so positive for the learning process that uh, the visual learns better f- through the group you know, and by uh, involving the other athletes in embracing volumes and making sure that th- things are safe i think that's already different and and better for the athlete than if the coach does it because it's more involvement it's more uh, of of your peers and uh, it already gets a different uh, quality then
1: Yeah. And I think if you did, if you did a good job as setting up the environment, like we could just walk away and they continue to progress the challenge sometimes in that sense. Like it's almost like the group can come up with ideas that you wouldn't have come up with necessarily like, oh, what would happen if we do this? And um, I think, yeah, it's almost like (laughs) organic in that way.
0: Yeah, but it's actually this is what, what some coaches criticize with the constraints that approach, that it almost seems to be a little wishy-washy, or the role of the coaches doesn't seem to be very strong. You know, why do we need a coach if it's just about setting the environment? Uh, but uh, I think for us, it's, it's almost more valuable to watch practice like this, because you learn so much about the athlete. And I would almost argue that an athlete that fails to identify the affordances, like landing on the volumes from the top, would have the same problems in the the climbing competitions to uh, not being really smart in, in detecting affordances. And this is maybe the most valuable uh, thing for me that uh, even as a coach, I can see them at work. I can see their mind uh, uh, working and uh, trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with these, uh, with these constraints.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, you just have to see coaching from a different perspective a little bit, because part of that for me, um, so much of the coaching, I guess, was setting up that environment well before the camps even happened and uh, and adapting to like, oh, wait, this isn't the right level. And I think we'll get to that in here. Uh, I think one of the challenges of, of coaching climbing is that, you know, if we're just putting if if the task is just let's get to the top of this boulder or or something along those lines, sometimes the level's too high. And so what we get is just the, let's repeat it over and over and figure out how to do it. And it's it's binary, you either do it or you don't, which I think I, I I would like to go back to that point at some in the future, but um yeah. it's just way too hard. The challenge is just way too hard for the individual, and so the learning is just too slow. You know, you're basically waiting for chance that this person happens to do, you know, five things right for the first time, that they do it, and that they're you know gonna reflect back and know that those are the five things that I did to be successful. And sometimes boulders can be like that. So, uh, we had this from last time that we did, uh, some, some of our chats, I guess, uh, which was when we were trying to think about how to practice movement off the wall. And a big part of it was the
0: challenge point.
1: Uh, if you want to chat about that for a little bit, Udo.
0: Yeah, this is where the, 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 uh, the top angle of the performer comes into place you know if you go back to the triangle of the uh, constraints led approach or you might remember on top it says the performer and of course you cannot change a whole lot you know if the performer is really short or really tall there's nothing you can do about it but uh, if you think about the challenge point what Al just uh, mentioned then it makes sense because um, you in a group in most group settings like if you're talking 13 year olds there can be one foot apart in in terms of of reach and length and span and um, and then just uh, thinking about how you can uh, find challenge point for everybody for all the individuals in your group uh, is really interesting and i find if once you start thinking this way it becomes almost really easy you know to see okay if i tell this really tall boy to not do this and this and this. This is not allowed. You know? that, so I put constraints on on him. You know? And the really short girl is, uh, you know, gets more affordances, you know, or in this way. Then, uh, with a little practice, it's possible to keep a whole group at their individual challenge point, at the challenge point of the individual uh, athletes. In the next example, our rather simple setup allowed us to have the whole group working at their individual challenge point. The athletes ran perpendicular into the wall, first stepping on a decent foothold that we changed, once they got better at it, to a slippery dual-texture hole. We had three groups working in parallel on this maybe 6 meter wide. SLABBY wall.
1: Yeah, so we have a kind of example from some of the camps that we would do, which is essentially, I don't think this was even planned. If I remember, like, we didn't have this planned as one of the drills that we were going to do. But I think i it was more like, oh, I noticed that some of the kids were having a hard time with something and we had just this like little sliver of a wall. And so we just decided to do kind of this idea of this drill to just jump up to a jug and change the foot over and over again to make it you know from like the least risky to the most risky uh foot and in the corner you basically see like we changed eventually like the last level that they were getting to was this dual text upside down foot uh, and i think that has i have realized that that's always become really valuable as taking just one thing and regressing it and progressing it as much as possible in either direction because for exactly for what you're saying it's like we got so many attempts maybe in like the 15 minutes that they were spending there uh they learned more about that kind of move than they would trying a single boulder for like two hours just because so much so much of that idea of throwing weight into the foot uh is applicable to you know hundreds of boulder problems later on
0: yeah also this element of changing direction you know, converting horizontal momentum into uh, vertical to step up into the wall and then of course with the dual texture with the slippery hold you have to do it with more authority you know you have to get it really right you know and, and it's actually really related uh, to running over volumes it, it would be, in, in my mind, is the next step. You know, it could be like uh, two, two lessons, and the first would be running over the volumes, and then with additional constraints of change of direction, this could be a challenge uh, for, for the second part of, of this se- session.
1: And for so many of these things it's like physics, you know. For like if you're one yeah. of those people you think like, "Oh, well physics if I'm putting the force in the right direction, it's never going to slip." But that's you know, your logical brain and then your you know, your rational brain versus your okay, what's the worst-case scenario when this foot slips? Is I'm going to slam into the wall. And so you have to provide an opportunity for them to kind of work up to that and and it, you know, if the first time they see a move like that is Ten feet off the ground at a competition, trying to qualify for you know whatever they're trying to qualify for. It's it's not a good place. There's way too many other constraints in the environment for them to actually learn there. And going back to basically the binary part of it, I really do think that whenever you're making, like what I've found really useful, is that it is kind of like a pass fail thing, with, where you kind of keep the constraints you can lower them low enough but essentially we're jumping up to this jug and either you do it right and you get the jug or you don't do it right and you're coming off with low kind of investment in the sense that well they just try it over again and we'll just make it a little bit easier because in that sense you i do appreciate the fact that like if uh if you can kind of narrow the constraints down as much as possible, then they can really take a a good lesson away from it. It's, oh, well, I put a lot of pressure into it and I was able to do the move versus I don't put enough pressure into it and I don't do the move. And so it gives you really clear cut, like they learn valuable lessons off of that. Because you know if you add holds on, then afterwards I'd say the next progression from something like this is starting off of the wall you know, and having a similar move, but where you don't have the momentum of running into the wall, but even just by adding there, then you add a bunch of other, uh, constraints that they have to account for. And they just take this part of it, which is when I throw my foot into the wall, I have to put a lot of force in this direction and they just layer that on top of the other information as well.
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think back uh, to to our last, uh, of the example in our last show from Meiringen, you know, where where Adam was struggling with the first move a little bit, this this stand up into the uh, two finger pocket, you know, I think that would be fantastic preparation uh, uh, for exactly that. So what they were just practicing is exactly what's asked very often, you know, about this rather simple physics, action, reaction, uh, directions, momentum.
1: Yeah, and so maybe for people on podcasts who might be listening to this and not be able to see the video. Uh, yes, yes. What's going on is here is that we've essentially just like a small piece of the wall where we just swap the foot really bad, like volume-y foot. So it's it's got a lot of surface area on the wall and the athletes are doing a run start basically and the foot gets so bad and for most of them the first reaction once you turn the dual text over is like okay well you can't do that anymore and and then so it was like for us it was really valuable because it's like no no you definitely can do it it's just that you have to come at it from the right direction um for people who don't have i think it's really nice to be able to just change the wall constantly, we'll do whatever you want on it, but you might be in a gym where that's just not necessarily feasible. Um, but let's say you're set, you've are set, you set a kind of a dyno that st- starts off the wall, something that's really useful to regress that is for them to try to run up into the position. Um, similarly, basically like, well, let's do the move by just trying to run up and standing up into it. and it's kind of little ideas like that that i guess the goal is to just regress the move and bring the challenge point to be more in line with whatever your athlete is at because if you can continually do that if you just really really push it as tight as possible the learning is significantly better for the athlete
0: yeah and one one thing uh, it just comes into my mind came into my mind when you were uh, Talking about like the angle, like what you're seeing now is most of them run straight into the wall in the, in the uh, like, or, or you call it like straight, uh, no, 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 angle. perpendicular. They don't come perpendicular perpendicular. Yeah. The perpendicular to the wall. They run into uh, to the wall in this example. And this came because we had three of them practicing at the same time, you know, and the other ones were waiting in line. And now that I'm watching this, I'm almost thinking, like maybe uh, in, in some cases it would have been better to run from an angle, not per- perpendicular. But of course, since they were practicing uh, 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 with not too much space to, to the side, you know, that was the only way to run into the wall was perpendicular. So that might have been a good thing because we were kind of constraining the way they were running into the wall, but somehow they couldn't really did, Detect uh, like if the affordance if it would have been better to run from an angle this would maybe would have been missed in this setup
1: yeah right. no i agree does it make sense yeah yeah when there's a window to the right so, side we can't we can't run from that side
0: yeah because this is something you see really uh, often that uh, even on, on high level competitions that uh, climbers fail To uh, detect the best angle to run into uh, a run-up start.
1: Yeah, I think one of the it's it's kind of one of those things where for a lot of athletes, I think when they start thinking boulders, they they treat them like pattern recognition. Uh, it, it's almost like well I've done a version of this boulder before and now I'm gonna apply that like these are the things that I did when that and and that's not what we're trying to do uh, what we're trying to do is that you start recognizing like situations um, and feelings <laughs> more generally, like this is what this foot feels like at this angle. And I think that was that men's number two in Merrington was a good example because you, you, you see a lot of those athletes, they've done climbs like that before, but what it's really about is like, they just know that foot at that angle and how much weight they have to throw in a certain direction. And so if you start thinking like, Oh, well, this is a popular boulder. I'm going to make sure that I can do this boulder. Um, yes, that can sometimes work and you will sometimes get boulders that are very similar, in which case like your, your body might remember, this is what the move felt like. But the reality is setting is such a moving target that you want to kind of draw on the things that are going to be really helpful that are going to apply from as much from this boulder to the other boulder. Yeah. Uh, and, and so that's where these constraint led approaches are going to be most useful also because a uh, part of it is, like you were talking about the environment in terms of just having like a group of 10 kids running back and forth onto the wall that in itself, like you said, uh, you start to notice who takes 10 attempts for every one attempt for another kid. That's very common. And part of that might be that you're very self-conscious about, you know, slamming into the wall. And that's an opportunity Then you notice that and you see this person, okay, this person tries 10 times to this person's one. Both of those are problematic in a certain way, because if this person's trying 10 times and they're always, you know, succeeding, then it's like, as a coach, am I not making this challenging enough for you? Okay, that's an issue. Second, are you only willing to try things that you're going to be successful at because you want to seem successful at them? Okay. That's something else that you can notice from this. The other one is this person not trying this at all. Okay. And why is that? Or is it because you're self-conscious about, you know, not being successful in front of a group of people? And those are so beneficial for a coach to, to see.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is again, going back to the uh, challenge, challenge point, right? that uh, that because uh, when i mention social facilitation you know it's it's a good thing so the individual is better because of the group or uh, performs better and is trying harder but there's also the opposite you know the group uh, uh, can uh, distract us from from being uh, trying new stuff you know we tend to only try uh what we are um what we know in, in in the group setting and again this is something what's this is really interesting for for the coach to observe now, because again if if it happens in practice it certainly will be an issue in, in competition and under stress
1: that's why those situations are also really valuable for you as a coach especially if you coach a team where you start noticing the social aspects that like you said you're they're going to come up in competition if they have a fear of performing in front of a group because they're worried about you know seeming like incompetent i guess like whatever whatever their their uh insecurity might be about climbing in front of other people like guess it shows itself in a group and then you're you have to approach it the same way. So the environment is too challenging in that situation. Like maybe you have to take this person and put them in a in a different situation that's going to help them build confidence to work towards a, another larger, more demanding environment. And uh, that's all part of it. So I think really important, as you mentioned, not to discount the social side of the challenge. Yes,
0: and also uh, like talking of the environment, we really have to keep in mind that our modern environments are a lot safer, a lot more even, you know, we have even ground almost everywhere, except when we're in nature, we have uh, right angles, you know, so we live in a much less challenging environment compared to people from 60, 70 uh, years ago. And you might think, oh, well, why, why bother? You know, but I, I really think that um, it messes with your uh, ability to problem solve. You know, I think it's w- when we did, for example, obstacle parcours in, in our camps, Al. Even the 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 athletes that are really fantastic climbers in in the certain settings, they show some weaknesses if if the challenge is slightly what they don't usually do, so slightly off. You know they they are not as competent as you would expect in in challenges that are slightly different, and I think that's uh, that's one. a thing that comes from our, uh, our rather, boring and man-made environments that we spend a lot of time in. Like even things, like you have an outdoor uh, competition, like in in Vale in former times. It's and it could get really cold in Vale, so you have an athlete who never climbed outdoors, and she's getting cold hands, you know, because she and this is something she's never dealt with. And uh, again, I, I think we really have to make our environments as d- diverse and, and uh, yeah, uh, bring them back basically to an unorderly uh, nature envi- environment very often. And I think that's overlooked really often. Like it's not only the things we we talk of really often that that people practice too much in in two dimensions and not enough uh, three dimensionally that will be environmenting, but it's also the 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 shades in between you know, that uh, we we always have to consider. This this uh, that uh, uh, bolder, more modern boulder gym is a really challenging environment, but like uh, aspects like weather. Temperature, uh, um, (laughs) wetness uh, uh, are still not a part of this environment. So it's still a rather uniform, man-made environment. And I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we don't prepare our athlete for that, the environment could be much more uh, diverse,
1: yeah, I think if you just take it from like the how how you respond to this, you can see it one of two ways, which is okay. The environment became more challenging, and then you can become really frustrated about the environment becoming challenging, and so that might look like oh my skin my skin hurts or my skin is dry. The conditions aren't ideal, and you have you know certain athletes that respond. I think a person that's been very comfortable with working in a constraints led approach is going to respond as like oh well this is one of the new constraints that I'm dealing with now um it, there's like an acceptance there and the, so for me a lot of times warming up is about acceptance okay these are the constraints today I'm tired uh my skin hurts this is my third day on I'm jet lagged like you either say, "Oh well, things are going south really quickly. Like this is not going to be a good competition for me," and that's a mental approach to it, or you see them as part of the constraints to, you know, the the day essentially. Like, okay, well, that's a new constraint. That means that I because then essentially you're gonna you're gonna have uh, solutions, or I guess you're gonna have an idea of what you're it's going to modify how you climb that day. Okay, my skin's really bad. So, you know, uh, I think for fear of not bleeding, I might adjust how many attempts I do, uh, things like that. Like I'm very tired, so I have to climb a little bit with more momentum because certain moves I'm just not going to be able to control like I used to. And those are different. And if you're constantly training at in that mindset, you become a little bit more resilient like you said if all of a sudden it just gets really cold so that's just a new
0: part of the challenge it's part of the game i guess yeah yeah one one uh, word or term you can think about this is bandwidth you're basically increasing your bandwidth or the, your tolerance you know, for for uh, for condition and uh, for conditions and um uh, again this is a really Im- important aspect and i think many coaches underestimate, you know, you have a certain movement and you think that's really stable, but actually it's not. As soon as you try to speed up this move, regardless what it is, you might even use different muscle groups uh, for for the faster move or for the slower move. So it's not that uh, uh, that we are moving like robots, you know, and this is usually beneficial to increase this bandwidth so that somebody can fluidly react, oh, this hold now feels a little bit moist or a little bit slippery, or maybe it wasn't brushed in the competition, you know, couldn't get, get brushed now that uh, competitors have to brush themselves, they couldn't reach the hold, you know, and, and if this is part of your practice, that you're constantly uh, forced to react to, uh, to varying constraints, I think it will pay off nicely. It's really beneficial.
1: Yeah, in practices, a lot of the athletes I worked with are, are gotten really used to like <laughs> doing the boulder, then me immediately changing the foot or whatever they just did over, and asking yeah. them to do the same boulder five times. And essentially, because uh, in either direction, and like I mentioned, it's hard. Sometimes you don't have a gym where that's a possibility, so you you have to use some. You know, you have to be creative in different ways in terms of. If you can add a hold potentially afterwards, or yeah, I mean removing things, or just saying you can't use that. uh, Like, but I would just take feet off, change the foot. Okay, you did that move with that foot. Let me change it to this foot, and they learn a lot from situations like that. And initially, it's you can tell how they respond to it. If they respond to it initially, it might be annoyed. Oh well, I just did the boulder. You're like picking on me.
0: uh, but I think the buy-in is uh, better than if you ask them to to repeat, for example, the same boulder. You know, if yeah. you increase the challenge, I think if if they are ambitious, as most athletes are, they are very uh, willing to try the new challenge, and they, very often they appreciate it. And uh, I think from the coach's side, uh, in most gyms, especially if you're not coaching like national teams or so. Uh, it's very often it's divided between the setters, and you're not allowed to to set your own problems you know also for the athletes, even successful ones in most commercial gyms they're not a- allowed to to change anything, but with a little bit of creativity, I think you can do a lot you know if you just think about it, if you don't allow the athlete to match, for example you know then then some really easy problems can become really challenging if you're not allowed to match you know or you're not allowed to use part of the holes or your your leg is broken and you only can use one one foot uh, on on the slab of course you know then you 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 can create some fantastic challenges without even uh, changing anything with a with a setting
1: yeah i will i will mention one one potential thing to think about when you're doing something like that is you know very frequently nowadays they have uh, holds that have the inserts to cover the bolt hole you know what i'm talking about and so a lot of times like i wouldn't cover it because they just don't work super well and i'd just be like the, the tell the athletes okay well you're not allowed to sink your thumb in there and use it and they get used to that as part of their constraint and then they carry it over into a competition where that's not a thing anymore and i've had this as a problem where then i'm like you also have to have situations where they learn essentially to make sure they know what the constraints are and give them enough practice where it's by any means necessary where they're digging in behind a volume and using the screw you know because you, you do notice how creative some of those athletes are in finding all that stuff. And that goes back to just, um, when you're in performance mode and where, when you're in practice mode, what the yeah. goals of those yeah.
0: modes are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the world cups were decided uh, by people that use the, uh, the bolt hold is a bolt hole. Uh, so, and again, now, as a coach, if you see something like this, it's also a little bit of the culture that you're creating with your athletes, you know, and it should be like, even if you say, "Ah, this wasn't allowed or so, but a part of you should be proud of your athletes that they, uh, that they detected this, you know, and a part of you should be a little bit ashamed that you didn't see it yourself, if you didn't see it yourself. And on the on the very high like last year when we did the uh, the show with benny hartmann or what we've been doing in germany you all you often misleading your your athletes you know or, or confusing them or directing their at- attention to something that's not really uh, important you know and take it away from something that would be important to detect
1: yeah can you give me an example like we'll in that situation, yeah, just
0: a primitive example is uh, if you're playing a little bit with the ex- uh, expectancies, uh, expectations, expectancies, expectations, expectations, uh, expectations. Like um, you talk a lot about dynamic moves, and then uh, you have them climb something like you know, there were even in World Cups, when, when these uh, skate moves became popular, you know, there were. Uh, often it was easier to just balance across and just do them in a really controlled fashion. And one time in in Vale again, I think like in 2013 or so, Anna Stöhr, who was the best climber of this time, a female climber, she almost didn't make semis because she she tried to do a a running skating move all, all the time. And it was Alex Puccio who uh, did it really easily and, of course, had the top, uh, uh, flash the problem. And Anna almost got kicked out because of her uh, attempts to do to, to the skating move. So this should be definitely part of, of your uh, preparation if if you prepare your athletes for, for competitions. There should be, if they're a little bit advanced, but I think you can start this really early and, From my observations, even kids really appreciate it. You can be a little bit misleading. Like you talk about one thing, one thing, one thing, and they get really annoyed by you always repeating the same thing. And then you have them try something really, uh, 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 something where the opposite of what you just described is really beneficial. And this is also a good exercise for them to think for themselves. You know you can uh, you can find out what athletes are maybe giving you lip service you know or trying to please you first uh, and climbing the problem second or you know, again again it's just it's also good fun uh, by the way and this these cognitive aspects should be certainly a part of of, of, of your preparation
1: yeah I think like you mentioned the response to how Basically, like when an athlete does something that maybe you weren't anticipating as a coach, the response to that is really important for that reason because you want them to basically continue that thought of, like, uh, okay, well, what are the rules? What am I allowed to do? Okay, I'm going to do the task, um, and not so much thinking this extra step, which is, what does the coach want me to do here necessarily. Uh, and then doing that because then that gets you into the mindset of what does the route setter want me to do here necessarily Um, and sometimes that's useful like I think that's a tool that athletes can have in terms of like okay I'm not exactly sure what this boulder looks like but you know I have an idea and that can be useful but you also want to be able to completely think from the this is my start this is my finish how do I get to the top using everything that I have available to me and those are two different ways of, of thinking about it because one leads you like you said if, if Anna is if somebody thinks oh well this is a skate and for four minutes all they do is try a skate because it's set up very similar and it looks like you know that's what's popular nowadays versus somebody who's like well this could go as a skate it also looks like it could I could walk across and maybe you have plan A and plan B and you have a way of switching between the two. This is a good transition into I think we can wrap up today's episode with an example from the Meiringen World Cup. If you want to set this up for us, Udo.
0: Yeah, this is the second problem in the in the finals uh, for the females in, in Meiringen and I think it had been it got four... Uh, I mean, four uh, women could do this, uh, they, uh, could climb up to the zone, right, if I remember correctly. And here you see it from all different angles. Um, and I think that's, that's really interesting. Uh, this problem is really interesting in terms of detecting affordances. And uh, this is what I find enjoyable if you watch the, even the live stream, because I was thinking that the zone hole that she just uh, stamped on, that it would be maybe too much around the corner to be really beneficial. But then, of course, on the screen, you really cannot tell. Uh, and you you see uh, different versions. And we were just thinking, Alan and I were, were thinking that this is a, a spectacular problem. It's a fantastic problem. But still, it affords these four uh, different ways, and it's not very constrained. You know, it would be easy to make this quite a bit more challenging. This problem, and we wanted uh, to talk a little bit about what you would do to prepare your athletes to have more bandwidth in a problem like this, well, like what you would really change hands on yeah. this problem.
1: And I think like if we were because one of the hard parts and especially this is how when you hear the term like a boulder got overcooked for a competition, you know, the the route setters also have constraints that they have to work with. And part of that is not just guessing the level, but, you, you know, will a person figure this out in four minutes? And so that leads to there's the hold essentially on the highest volume, the right hand, where most people are, are swinging off of, and it has an in-cut. And in-cut holds are generally gonna lead to for more affordances, and you can see that. And I think the, one of the cool things about somebody like Orion in this clip is that she realizes like, uh, she has a good understanding in this situation, like, oh, what I can take a swing on that hold uh, with both hands. And so that's a good, a really good indication of somebody who this, sees the affordances of what that hold allows them to do, essentially.
0: Yes. So if we would take the the one the hold we're talking about the hold that Natalia had uh, just now in her right hand, and it's a huge uh, hold, but inside it's this. Um, did they put a Spax on the on the hold? Do you know, or is this as uh, positive?
1: it looks like a jib inside of it so i think no matter yeah, what it's going to have kind of like an ink behind it yes. and you can tell because yeah. of the swing they're taking on it like that's kind of exactly. the indication.
0: exactly exactly and this would be uh like a very easy i mean if if i had seen this uh, as a coach of a potential uh, competitor in the finals i would try to make sure that my athlete would uh, would be able to climb this thing without the jib In in this hold,
1: yeah, and maybe the boulder would just be. uh, That's one of the things where it's like, uh, especially you don't know what the time constraints were to try to get the boulder for the right level. And usually, you know, there's going to be some level of tweaking that they might do based on how semifinals went. And uh, but for a camp, for learning situations, for me that would be the first thing. Okay, we all did it this way. I'm really curious. Let's see if we can do this boulder without this jib on, and. Because, it, like you you mentioned, it, it, the first example is perfect. We give everybody an opportunity to see their limits and learn where their limits are. Like, okay, you, you went with both hands to that jug. I think an incorrect response as a coach is like an egocentric where, oh, man, like you know the boulder sucks basically which is not the case you should be rewarding you should essentially be encouraging the athlete for being like dude you found that that's really good that you found that because i didn't even know necessarily that that would be something that would happen um but then immediately after that you can kind of be like okay well we we figured out how to do it this way let's let's see if we can take this jib off and find out you know how you approach this boulder problem and it's going to be really similar and I, i i'm willing to bet that they did it that way but then maybe it's just okay this seems too too hard for like the amount of time that we would be giving the athletes does that sound right yeah
0: yeah yeah absolutely and uh, just as a a last thought so just imagine you leave this your problem was successful uh, your your athlete was successful under the circumstances and you leave it like this then basically, what you're fostering is uh, the ideal behavior for for these constraints with an in cut And And uh, if the jib is gone, if they have nothing in in-car to to hold the swing, they don't have any uh, strategy for that. They don't have any tools for that. And this is why I think it's so nice to uh, consider the constraints-led approach. You know, because it would have been so so easy to uh to manipulate the constraints that uh, she would have learned how to deal with the situation without the jib
1: i am willing to bet that if you took the jib off so let's say we were doing this at a camp and if you took the jib off and the athletes saw that you took the jib off because it, it, another interesting part would be i think this is fun you tell them to walk away you change the boulder you don't tell them how you walk, change the boulder and you'll get an idea of who's very perceptive like who actually pays attention but let's say you know you take the jib off in front of them and i'm willing to bet that orion would not try that beta again like she would know that that's just not going to work um yeah potentially yeah I think there's still and a chance. We don't know
0: how how, how easy this jib was to uh, watch from the ground. Well, we should ask uh, one of the competitors to to find out. You know, because if they hadn't seen the the jib if it was um, it looks as if from the side you can see it. No, but, but I totally agree. I totally agree. This uh, uh, all these finalists are exceptional uh, affordance detectors. No, this is probably what sets them apart the most in this field. And especially somebody like Oriane, She's so perceptive.
1: Yeah, and there was more instances during this competition where it was, you you know, you saw similar, like in, in the hand jam problem, same thing. Like they see the hand jam and they're like, I think I see what they want me to do here, but I can do this instead. And I think athletes that are able to, you know, be really secure. And it's because they've seen a lot of situations where somebody told them, okay, this is your what you're doing. And not so much thinking about what people want them to do, but more just thinking like, okay, well, this is the top of the boulder, and I'm going to get to it with whatever is necessary. And it's even if you give them a brand new hold, a hold that they've never held before, uh, they start to just it's a lot of that stuff takes over. Well, it's like this angle, in this angle, I can probably do this with that. Like I felt the texture. This is kind of like the amount of friction that I feel like I have. And um, that's kind of what the, having a constraint sled approach teaches you is, how to detect you know those things that carry over from one situation into the next one
0: when we do this at camps one aspect is really that you learn about the athletes a lot faster than you could if you have a conversation you know if you would ask questions you know there you see them in action you see them and what they're actually doing and so I, I think it's also a very efficient way of coaching you know that's that's one big uh, part of it
1: yeah i agree all right well thank you Udo. that was fun i'm sure we'll revisit this i think all this stuff is going to build on itself so in the future you know if we have a conversation about another subject it'll probably be put in the context of a constraint-led approach and that might even help just you know make it more clear about what
0: we're talking about as well so on to the next one this was the second episode of the climbing talent development show if you are listening on the Anchor platform, you can leave us a voicemail with your feedback. If you are listening on another platform, please visit my homepage udini.com, udini.com and get in touch from there. Thank you very much for listening and see you in about two weeks' time. Bye bye!